HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we have stories about food in large quantities. From bulk buying groups and reasons for stocking up, to creative solutions for handling excess waste. We have someone picking up our corks from the wine bottles and they repurpose them to make buoys for boats and, and, and like shoes and all these different things. Yeah, because of the COVID, uh, everybody like uh, isolated at home. But uh, to see the people face to face is still exciting. So we kind of treat it like a chance to say hello to the people and to the friend. Listen to Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. Hi, everybody. How are you doing this week? Um, pleasure to have you with us, as always. I uh, hope everyone's having a nice fall. It's such a kind of special time of year. It's funny. I just woke up not so long ago. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but um, I was feeling a little bit more sleepy than usual when I popped out of bed this morning. And I'm just realizing that we're not unlike bears, where I think the cooler weather in the fall is encouraging us to all kind of like hibernate. That's what it felt like to me, at least. So if you feel like a bear, you're not alone. Um, This week on the show... (laughs) We are joined by the lovely Laura Green. Um, Laura is the founder of the Portland Green uh, Grief House. Pardon me, Portland Grief House in Portland, Oregon. Um, and the Grief House is this incredible place, and we kind of found each other on Instagram. And I was really interested in in what she was doing. Um, so. Laura started this place, the Portland Grief House, and it's a kind of like a community center um, where folks who have experienced grief in all different kind of ways can come together and kind of intertwine and share stories and do different activities and art and gardening. And um, their motto is weaving loss into life, which I think is beautiful. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, as we'll discuss in the episode, um, people who come together in this capacity to do groups and activities together in their grief are like separated into, um, you know, widow widows and 
um, mothers who lost children. And, and that's really wonderful sometimes because it is great to be able to, you know, share in people's specific grief. But um, at the grief house, they everybody who experiences grief kind of mingles together and shares together. And I think that's really interesting. Um, so they have just launched a new site, website for the Portland Grief House, and it's griefhouse.org. Please check it out. Um, please follow everything that they do. And this conversation was so lovely. And I love, you know, everyone just has such a different way of like, you know, not only viewing the world, but then of like the vernacular they choose to express how they interpret things. And I really just liked the way that Laura communicated her feelings about life. I thought that was, she was very unique in that way. And uh, the conversation was a delight. It was beautiful. So um, please enjoy our talk with Laura Green. Check out Portland Grief House at griefhouse.org. And stay stay cool out there. Um, hang in there. That uh, sounds like a generic bit of advice, but truly, hang in there because times are really weird and tough. And um, you know what? They're more intense and hot now, but... They're always tough, you know, we always, we always have cause to hang in there. So hang in there. And also please reach out to us if, um, you would like to be a guest on the show. If you have a listener letter, if you have something you just kind of want to share, we'd love to hear from you and thank you for your support. And if you do have a moment, please rate, review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. It really does help us. Um, be able to access more people, uh, for more people to be ac- be able to access us, which is the goal. Um, and, you know, tell a friend. Hey, friend, I listen to this podcast that I like. That's that's a good old-fashioned way of sharing things. Um, okay, that's enough out of me. Uh, thanks, guys, and we love you, and we'll talk to you later. Enjoy our conversation with Laura. So we are joined today by Laura Green. Laura, hello. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Hi, Laura. So, hey. Laura, you're joining us from Portland, Oregon. Uh, hey. Do you say Oregon or Oregon as an Oregonian? <laughs> I say Oregon as an Oregonian. Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I also say Oregon, but I didn't know perhaps I was saying it incorrectly. No, but... for years I said Oregon because you would think, but no. <laughs> Oregon. Oregon. Right, you're not you're not originally from Oregon or Oregon. <laughs> no, I'm not. Where, where are you from originally? Massachusetts. Okay, awesome. And how long have you been out on the West Coast for? Um we moved out here in 2007. So okay. however many years that equals. Yeah, a lot, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them. So, yeah. what are you what are you cooking now? What are you what have you been eating and cooking these past days, months, week? It can be, you know, yesterday or just kind of a general theme of the last, you know, couple months. What what do you got going? Um, well, interestingly, these la- this last week, uh, you know, because everything's on fire. Yeah. Um it's it makes me feel uh nervous about heat sources. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah, and I don't need that to be. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not um, a requirement because I have my heat sources under control inside my house. Yeah. But 
Um, I still just like, I don't want to use space heaters. Like I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I'm just sort of um, disinclined toward heat. Um, So I've been eating many cold things this past, (laughs) this past week, which I also feel, I mean, I I felt torn because on the one hand, I feel a little bit, um, a little bit, I mean, it's a little bit bleak if I'm going to be totally honest. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's gray and uh, the animals look, I feel worried about like the crows, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, everybody's dirty and, so there's part of me that wants to be eating like, like soups and I don't know what, like casseroles and, um, like winter comfort. Of, yeah, yeah. Like thick comforting things that are like, mm-hmm. no, you're going to be like, it's fine. We're mm-hmm. like, you'll eat this and you'll stay still. And mm-hmm. in a little while you'll be able to come out of the cave and everything will be better. Mm-hmm. But instead I've been having like caprese salad. Which doesn't really doesn't really work exactly. <laughs> well, it's bring it in a different way, right? And also, I mean, I guess just embrace it. I think it's really interesting what you said, though, about feeling like you want to kind of try to avoid heat, being that everything's on fire. And, like, I don't know. It just struck me. I was in a very bad accident maybe, mm-hmm. like, 14 years ago. I was in a bus that, like, went off a cliff and it exploded. Oh, yeah. And I felt myself having the same feelings afterwards of being very, like, uncomfortable specifically around like grills and space heaters and stuff like that Mm. I remember being at a restaurant and there was one of those like outside propane propane like space heaters and I was very uncomfortable around it and yeah but not really like what are the odds it's not going to just blow Mm -hmm. up but like when you're feeling like you know Mm -hmm. uh, inflamed no you know pun intended but inflamed Mm -hmm. by something that's happened it's a trauma a trauma causes us to recoil in our body and it affects our digestion and everything Yeah. yeah Yeah, and totally. you just, yeah, it's like interesting how our bodies, I mean, my body has identified danger, you know, it's mm-hmm. like smoke, it, like just on a really fundamental, I think, cellular level, a, a, a mammal body is like smoke is a bad, is a sign that something bad is happening. And mm-hmm. then it tries to figure out how to create safety. And I think that that is where the challenge lies, you know, and mm-hmm. even in some, even, even in this, like it's pretty, um, Cause there's, cause there's different, so many different paths to safety. So my yeah. body's like, well, on the one hand we should, we should eat thick, rich, like that's a path to safety. On the other hand, yeah. we should, we should like only eat things that are wet. Very, very wet is what we're looking yeah. for. Which and would make sense for the conflict. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're in Portland, the city or in the outlying areas? I'm in the city, but Portland, have you ever been to Portland? I've never been there as much. I have a very good friend there, but I've never been there. It's lovely. It yeah. really is a delightful city. Um, most mm. of the time, it's just, it's a really nice place to live. Um, Portland is really neighborhoody. So mm. um, I'm in Northeast Portland. Um, and my neighborhood, so I'm in the city limits, but my neighborhood is like, I live in a house and I have a front yard and a backyard and like, mm. um you know, like a hammock and a, and a hive of bees. And, um, That's awesome. yeah, so it's, it's, uh, so yeah, I am in the city, but, but like the protests are, it's, it's really been very interesting with all that's been going on in Portland because people are like, you know, you're in the middle of this, like, well, I mean, with the fires, it's different. Oh, my cat's here. Yeah. Oh, hi, um, cat. <laughs> <laughs> fine. I should have kept her out, but then. What's her name? Her name is June. 
Hi, June. There's June. Are you going to say hi, Junie? No, she's not going to say hi. Oh. She is going to say hi later. <laughs> Sorry, that probably made noise. Um, no, it's okay. She's, she's loud. We'll keep our fingers crossed that she's not a major focus of this. <laughs> that she doesn't, like, interject too, too much. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but they're all away. Like, I, you know, there are helicopters that are flying, o- that have mm. been flying over the neighborhood and protests. But you really have to go to them because of the yes. way that neighborhoods are set up in Portland, which is also really kind of a strange. It's, it's interesting, an interesting um like experiential thing and then it's interesting metaphorically and yeah yeah so i'm, I'm and the, on and, and the fires are out of the outside areas right mm-hmm. from what i understand yeah. they had a lot of fires in your in the outside areas of portland yeah yeah, yeah there was one that was c- close pretty close um mm-hmm. is it's still going yeah it's so yeah. scary so you know it's it, i just think it's interesting uh i live in new york city and we've had instances in new york where we collectively kind of grieve as a city i'm wondering what it's like what's what's the beat like in uh portland just of how the city is maybe collectively grieving for what's been happening in all different ways like you know there's obviously been so much from the pandemic through to you know, I, I don't think protests themselves are a reason to grieve, but the reasons for the protest obviously is a deep grief for a lot of folks. And, um, you know, like, I'm just wondering, like, how Portland is grieving as a community. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. I don't, I'm a person who, like, I think we talked about this before, like, I'm an, I'm an only child of a single mother. Like, I grew up... Um, really engaged in community well i'm really um interested in the feelings of like the small group of people right around me so like i do massage um and i have clients and they come and i have like really significant really like i've had clients who've come every week for 11 years you know so they're like people i know really like really well and really deeply but i've never and i've never been um as good at community in a in a bigger way like people are very engaged in um community and like 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 I'm so into my neighborhood group or like I really love this this group of knitters or um and so I have felt like for me personally I felt like the the way the grief has been showing up in Portland is like these, all these different groups of people are experiencing grief. Like, f- indiv- I, this is the way it feels to me. I mean, I, yeah. and of course, everyone has it, but like individually, they're experiencing grief and then they're experiencing grief collectively. And then for me, I feel like I'm then getting like, um, like different channels of it. It's like there are many lakes of grief mm. and they're, and they're all sort of slightly different in their constitution. And each and and some people live inside the lakes, inside of this lake or inside of that lake. And I feel like for me personally, because I because of my work and because of just the way that I exist in the world, I have just many like tributaries, like many like rivulets yeah. that come through the spot where I am. So I have this these like kind of experiences of like of the grief of different like I have these little small experiences of all these different kinds of um, bigger griefs. And it's been interesting to see how many ways grief, um, 
shows up in an individual and then shows up when individuals come and come together. Like the protests, I think are, are expressions, right? The protests are expressions of grief. Absolutely. Um, Portland has done this beautiful thing before the, uh, well, and even during the protests with, I mean, maybe probably New York has too, where, um, people eat outside in, in Portland a lot anyway, mm-hmm. like at, in restaurants and like so many streets are, cl- are closed and just have like picnic tables set up. And I feel like that is a beautiful expression of grief. It's like Portland yeah. lost, Portland likes community. Portland is a city that likes that kind of bigger community that I have always felt unsure of or like a little bit foreign in, but Portland loves that, loves that <laughs> and does it over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Um, and I think it's working to figure out ways to make it despite obstacles. Like I kind of feel like that's what in some, on some level that sort of feels like what the protests are. They're like, no, we like, I mean, there are many, many things, but they feel like a community like insisting on itself. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I felt very connected. And when I mentioned like the protests aren't grief, I meant like they're not a reason for us to feel like, oh, there's protests happening. We're grieving because that like as though they're a bad thing. Expression of of course, when you said that they're an expression of grief, that's absolutely like couldn't be more Mm -hmm. accurate. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's interesting to see just everything that's been like happening in Portland in this way. Cause I, I, I don't know much about Portland. I know it as like a smaller kind of city and yet there's been so much like activation and obviously since the fires have been happening, it just seems like you guys have dealt with a lot, but it's interesting also how you're saying like seeing outdoor dining as kind of another like expression of like, because grief, right? Like we know it as just like this kind of like sa- grief is sadness, right? Like something dies mm-hmm. and you feel sad over it, but really it's also so much about like a rebirth or like opportunities mm. for rebirth. And like, um, I think that being resourceful and finding new ways of, of, uh, connection and of like doing things that were once familiar, but in a new way or as a part of grief too. And so mm-hmm. I think like, you know, seeing how restaurants adapt and how community adapts to, this kind of new world we live in is definitely emblematic of community and grief for sure. Yeah. A lot of healing going on. So you, I just want to go back a little bit. You mentioned that you uh, are the an only child of a single mother. Mm-hmm. Um, Samesies um, <laughs> with me. Um, and you had, you had mentioned when we were chatting before that your mom uh, almost passed away when you were very young, when you were like not even one years old, right? Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my mom, um, my mom is super interesting. Uh, really, she's a very interesting person. She um, she uh, was in the convent. She was a Catholic nun for 20 years wow. before she had me. She was a marital mm-hmm. nun. And um she left the comment. She joined when she was 17. She left when she was 37 and she left for a variety of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons was that she wanted to have a family. She wanted to have a child Mm -hmm. and she, um, had trouble. Like she had an idea that she was going to have a a husband and like, you know, like a traditional, like a, you know, the, I mean, that was, it was 1970 when she left the comment, it was 1973. So mm-hmm. there was a, you know, an idea of what that looked like, but it didn't work yeah. out. It's just, it just didn't work out. So she, she just, you know, like made me anyway. Um, <laughs> wow. And like, you know, she's like two years out of the convent. She's like, eh, I'll just, 
let's just throw a baby in here. Yeah. You know? um, wow. And she was in California when she, uh, my father and she met in California and um, she got pregnant and he was in Mexico visiting family uh, when she found out she was pregnant. And she, uh, she left, she left California and drove her Dotson across the country to Massachusetts. Um, and raised me there. So I had aunts that she had two sisters that were here there, Mm. um, who were a part of my upbringing, but she really didn't know anybody. And, um, she was really pretty on her own. Um, and so I was, we were living in an apartment and we had recently moved into it and she didn't know the people in the upstairs apartment. And both of my aunts were out of town and she was feeling very sick. And she went to the doctor and they said she had a kidney infection and um, it wasn't getting any, getting any better, but she was so determined not to leave me with strangers that she just dealt with it. She was just like, I guess it'll, I mean, she just was, um, she could not uh, allow the possibility that she was like very sick, mm. um, you know, because she was so fiercely uh, resistant to the idea of leaving me, wow. but her appendix had ruptured. Mm-hmm. And oh she gosh. just sat in the apartment until my aunt got back from her vacation. And by the time she got to the hospital, she had like sepsis and, you know, when she, she lost an ovary and a fallopian tube. And she was in oh the hospital gosh. for like three weeks. And um, she was like, you know, you, you die, like you can die. People die pretty yeah. regularly, which I think is also a really interesting thing, how like it is possible to, in an effort to never, ever leave a thing, you know? Exactly. She yeah. ended up having to leave for for a month. Yeah. And, right. and separate. you know, could potentially have ended up having to leave. Exactly. Forever. You know, or for yeah. whatever the space totally. of time that exists after you die. Um, yeah. So, and I was little, but I think that I, I knew, you know. Of yeah. course you do. Children that are um, toddlers and babies don't obviously experience loss in, in their thoughts, but they sense it. They sense the separation and it's, um, it can change your cells. You know, we know that trauma that happens even interutero is felt by the baby in their cells. Yeah. Mm. So that was an early trauma that you had and for your mom too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's the similarity when I was, Mom, how old was I when you were very sick? Bobby was very sick when I was like six years old. Yeah, and almost you were, died. Right, right. Um, and then also, you know, I was just kind of thinking not only about the sickness of like a single mother, but just, you know, we're gonna get to in a minute your the business that you've created or the community space that you've created. But um, I think that sometimes folks who grow up with um parents who are single mothers, single fathers, I think like, you know, in American culture, we're not as accustomed to the importance of community often as maybe other cultures are, you know, community can be a lot more, not only important, but completely necessary in other cultures and to like raising a child Mm and, um, and to just the way of life. And we really don't do that so much here, but I think sometimes children of single parents, like, you know, rely on community more and you're more like, I know we were enmeshed in community more in our family because because Bobby was a single mom yes, because exactly. Bobby was a single mom who had to work and we had to depend on you know not only like other people for childcare but just for friends relief for, right like right. of like being just one on one for feel, like, for feeling like a family 
actually, yeah, because right. we had friends who are right now in family. Portland. Actually, the friends that were our community mostly now live in Portland, which is interesting. Oh, okay. But they were a family that we just became part of because we mm-hmm. needed a family. It was just the two of us, and at times mm-hmm. that was just not enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the other thing with um, your mom being in the hospital for three weeks is that we develop attachment, you know, ver- from the beginning of our birth. And it's a very significant part of, of who we are as people and our relationships in the future and how we see ourselves. So when there's an interruption in attachment, it's significant. And there's all different kinds of interruptions in attachments. A mom can be sick or sometimes there can be addiction. Sometimes there can be all, all different reasons why there would be a, a, a separation. But mm-hmm. So do, do you ever feel that as part of who you are, that, that attachment interruption that you had when you were young? I do. And, um, and, and I think in a bunch of different ways, I think one thing is, and my mother is the, is the best mother, you know, like, uh, Mm. she is, she was, um, it's just so great to be loved by her. Um, she's very good at it. And I think that that actually made it in some ways, uh, harder, you know, because she was Mm. there, so there, um, and then, and then she came back and she was like very much there again. But I, um, I was always, I mean, I, I, I was always just, I knew that she could leave, you know, I knew that. Yeah. And I understood that she could die. Like I, um, and I don't know why, I don't know if that's because people talked about her dying while I was, while she was in, you know, like in front of me, people talk about stuff in front of little kids right, and just assume me. that they're not yeah. picking anything up. Um, but, and I'm not mad about it. Like, I don't mind that I knew that she was, you know, it it just made things different to be so deeply and, um, uh, sort of effortlessly and like very, um, faithfully attached to her in so many ways. And then also so aware that she she not not just she could die but that she would die like she will die um and uh and that's not a thing you can do anything about you know like you can't just eat cold wet food and it'll and it'll you know like be all right like I tried all the things like there's there's I mean I think it's it's sort of loose back it's like there are dangers that are 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 so big and and our bodies or my body no when our my body becomes aware of them it wants to do something um Mm -hmm. and uh and sometimes there are little things you can do you know like um she smokes she still smokes she smoked all my life and I was so angry with her all my life for smoking because it was a little Um, thing she could do you know it's like I understand you're immortal yeah. Like, okay, that's the roll of the dice that we got. We're both mortal humans, but mm-hmm. can you please not mm-hmm. smoke a cigarette? Like, do you yeah. see yes. how, yeah. like, we're yeah. in danger here? Like, you have to, yeah. like, you yeah. could help. You could limit our the risk. Um, yeah. So do I hear you saying that you, I, that you understood that there was um, mortality and that was one piece of it, mm. but did you also feel separation anxiety? Is that what you're also saying, that you... It's so interesting because as a child, I was not afraid of like the things like I wasn't afraid to go to school. I wasn't afraid. I mean, my mom was home with me. She cleaned houses when I was very little 
and brought me with her. So I wasn't separated from her much at all until uh, I started school. But then she worked and she worked, um, you know, she worked days until fifth grade, I, until I started fifth grade. And then she started working nights also. So I was on my own a lot and that was fine. I felt fully yeah. confident and comfortable. I wasn't afraid of like, um, I mean, like I was, I wasn't afraid of any of the things I was, but I was really, yeah, I, I had a strange kind of separation anxiety, like sleeping was really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, like I was afraid of the, of states that, um, of entering into a state of separation, not like being separated, but just like being vulnerable to it. Does, yeah. Or like it was the, it was like the metaphysical, like I was mm. afraid of, it's hard when it's not a specific thing, you know, like if, yeah, if, you're, if your anxiety manifests as a particular thing, that's really hard. If you're like, well, I'm going to take this fear and I'm going to tell myself that it's a fear of cats and I'm going to just, I'm going to avoid cats. And that's hard because then you have to live a life where you're struggling with, a you know, with those parameters. It's mm -hmm. also hard if it doesn't do that. And you're just like, no, I know that what I'm afraid of is like, like looming ephemeral, you know, totally. Uh, yeah. The specter as of we, that. <laughs> as yeah. we know, as we know, the recognition of our mortality, which doesn't always happen to children. Most children don't have that recognition, but it's both, um, a plus and a minus, right? It's a positive and a negative. It gives, it's a strength and a weakness. Yeah. So how remember, has, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I remember actually having the same feelings. Like after, you know, you were sick, mom, I remember realizing my mom could die and it made me so mm. sad. And I actually still think mm. about it. And I also was scared during the night too, mm. uh, of nothing in particular, but for a long time. I mean, I didn't even like to sleep on my own until I was mm -hmm. maybe like 12. I was like so afraid during the night of just anything. And I wasn't particularly I fearful other than that either. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's, it is, you're right. It do, does feel like a, a, I mean, now it feels like a blessing and, and I don't, and now I'm glad, like, I'm very grateful for my child self. She worked hard on this death thing. Like mm -hmm. she had a rough go with it, a rough go with it. And she, she couldn't get out. Like there was nothing that that little girl could have done to escape it. But like, like, damn, I'm so <laughs> glad it was her and not me. Like, I don't want to go back to that. Yeah. It was hard. It was yeah. really hard. Um, yeah. It's funny you say I'm glad it was her and not me. It's yeah. it's you. <laughs> it's a layer of you. Um, so do you have any memory? Like what was, what was eating like as, as a kid? Was your mom a cook? Did you guys cook together? What was the food vibe like in your house? Um, my mom was a nutritionist and she oh, wow. worked, yeah, she worked. Um, so when she was in the convent, the convent, the Marinol sent her to school, um, actually to Hunter, Hunter College in New York. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Um, oh. And the Marinols uh, to do, she, they're a, um, they're a very liberal Catholic uh, mm, sect. I can't mm -hmm. remember the word. I was like, cult? No, that's not it. Another <laughs> word. What's the it's word? It's close. Um, um, and so she, she, and they do a lot of um, sort of social reform stuff. And she was doing food education in Guatemala for a lot of the time she was in the convent um, and, wow. and trying to help uh, indigenous communities create food, um, sustainable farming methods that would allow them to be less dependent on, um, you know, government resources. Mm -hmm. 
for food. Um, and so, so she was very, um, connected to food, not politically because she's not political, but, um, in this kind of, um, how, how eating or not being able to eat changes how you get to be alive in the world. Um, and she worked at WIC for all of my, um, until like, you know, six, Mm. seven years ago. Um, do you know WIC? It's a, yeah. Yeah. Um, government food program. Yeah. Yeah. June. Um, oh, kitty, so cute. <laughs> she likes to smell breath. She's really oh. like, she wants to, <laughs> clients come and they sit at the table and she like will reach her little head up. She's like, could you please open your mouth? And like, she's also very interested in food and she just wants to know like, are you well nourished? What, what have you been? Like, what have she's you been a kitty nutritionist. Yeah, she's yeah. a good next interview. Um, <laughs> but so my mom is very interested, but she's not, um, but she'll just eat anything. Like my mother is like the kind of person, like she just survives. Like she'll, she just opens cans and eats the things. And so, um, like she cared a lot about the nutritional value of the food that we ate. And, um, she, uh, and then she also worked, she also started working two jobs. So like starting in fifth grade, I, um, cooked dinner. So she would, uh, come home. Her, her jobs were not that far from her house. So she would come home between her first job and her second job and I would, I would cook dinner and then she would eat it with me and then she would go to her second job. Um, so I think in our family, I, I feel like it wasn't, we never had, like I always had, I still have a idea about like the, like the big bountiful, I don't know, like table outdoors and there's like overflowing Mm. bowls and everyone's gathered and there's, um, and we never had that. That just wasn't in the, uh, it couldn't fit into the schedule. Um, but I think that, I think that for me, for us, I don't know, there was sort of like always a feeling of camaraderie with food. Like mm-hmm. this food is um, making it possible for us to do things in the world and other people don't have it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and uh, like, not celebratory in that, like, it's like movie about an Italian family celebratory way, you know, where like, um, but celebratory in this very workman like way, Mm. you know, in this very like, um, food to live. mm -hmm. No, we live, we live for food, but then there's food to live. So it yeah. sounds like it was more that way. It was more that way. Yeah. Mm. What kind of things would you cook as a fifth grade, yeah. someone <laughs> who was know. in fifth grade? Yeah. Um, well, I cooked, um, then I had a brief period. I stopped eating um, meat when I was really little. Like at, when I was two, I discovered that meat was animals and mm-hmm. um, was just like horrified. Like I was like, you yeah. <laughs> have to be kidding like yeah that's a hard concept for a kid if we really think about it where teach kids to like adore animals and think they're cute and they're the first thing that you I- do identify right you're like dog cat chicken and then you're like but you're also eating this and then you're just like what it is a weird concept for a child but i'm sorry Ow, you- woo, right? yeah so you discovered that meat was animal that's that's difficult i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. I, I figured out a lot of there was a lot of stuff coming at me when i was little yeah 
Um, and so I stopped eating it, but then I started eating it again when I went to school because um, it was more important to have friends and friends ate bologna. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so in middle school, I was eating meat and I stopped again when I was 14. So it was just like mm. a, like a little window, but um, I made beef stew I remember getting like, wow. my mother would get, well, it was like, we would get the cheap food. I mean, we also didn't have money, so we'd get the cheap food and we yeah. would get like these like cubed steaks. And I would, I remember like battering, like rolling them in flour. And I really liked how they felt, you know, like mm-hmm. yeah. meat actually. You got into the sensory really. parts of it. Yeah. yeah it's like Yeah, meat squishy. does feel good. It yeah. does feel good. And then when you flour it, it's like silky and squishy. Yeah. And I liked that a lot. And then I would <laughs> fry it and. We would also get um, meat ends from the deli counter. Is that a thing that still mm-hmm. happens? You can go and they'll just give you like the ends of like I, I think, think so, think yeah, like sandwich meat or whatever. Um, yeah. But it's like thick, and then I would like cut it into strips, and I would make stir fries. Wow, all right, yum. that's so and, resourceful and um, and awesome. Yeah, I had things. I had things. Yeah. I knew you I had your make. repertoire. That's yeah. great. That's so cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about um, what you do now. So you're a massage therapist, but you also run an amazing organization called the Portland Grief House. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can tell you about it. Um, it's cool. it's brand new, so it's just starting. So it I can tell you what it's like now, and then maybe um, – I mean, I feel like this is all part of what it's going to – like, it's just getting made, so it gets to yeah. be whatever mm-hmm. it turns into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so my idea is – so I, I think we talked about how um, – so after that, after my fear of like terrible fear of growing up in this terrible fear of death, and I struggled and struggled with her very actively in like uh, for a very long time, I finally managed to like get her to be quiet um, mm. by ignoring her, like which is I think what everyone else does, and it's and I understood that that was not everyone else, but I for me in my the particular spot I was in the world it it appeared to me like a lot of other people were living a life where they were just ignoring death and she yeah. was leaving them alone. And I, mm. I thought that would work for me. You know, I was like, I'll take it. I can't get rid of you. And I couldn't understand how to get into that for a really mm. long time. But finally I did. Finally I somehow managed to, to like, to just ignore her. Yeah. And, um, and that did work. That felt much better. And I did that from, all, like all of my 20s and um can I interrupt my, one second when you say her you mean your inner child who's scared of death I actually mean or aware not death. scared <laughs> not de- scared but de- like, oh, you meant I, death so you meant her meaning death the awareness of mortality now I have gotcha. at this juncture and I have like I mean you know it's all just strategies right it's all just a brain being like how can I how can I deal with like concepts that are much bigger than my little neurons are? Um, but at this point for me, it feels helpful to have, like, I, I think about death as like a person. She mm. looks a little, or not a person. She looks a little, she looks a little bit like, like a deer, like a cross between a deer and a bird in my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think about yeah, her, but it's good a, to have an image. Yeah. 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 Sure. Um, but so I had, so I had, so I was like, okay, you'll stay in your corner. I'll stay in my corner. I can construct a life just out. I just won't go in your area. Like, that's fine. There's a lot of space. And yeah. then my aunt Ruth died. She was one of the aunts in Massachusetts whom my, with whom my mom, one, the, my mom raised me. She was my primary. Like when you were talking about your family, she was like our family. Yeah. Um, 
and that was hard and stuff fell apart and but i put it i like dragged it all back together and um got trying to got back up on the horse on the ignoring horse mm. and um and then in 20 2021, 2016, 15, 2015, um, 2016. It just like, we talked about this, like I, there was just suddenly a period where it was like my aunt Norma died, that other yeah. aunt from Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and then things kept dying and leaving. Mm. Like I could not get my feet under me. It was like, Sometimes you know, like, like death and near death and animal death and, you know, like break up. It was just like everything was going. Yeah. Um, and I had to come up with a different strategy. Like I, I just like had to come up with a different strategy and there was no option except for just looking at her. Like she was like, yeah, no, I'm like, it's done now. The like ignoring yeah. phase is over. We're going to get to know each other because I'm like, everywhere you know she yeah. was just like i couldn't like, turn around without without it being right there it's like um, the archetype it's the archetype that's always there and you couldn't duck and hide anymore it was better to just if she was coming towards you yeah you might as well get to know her and it yeah. was it was actually um but then by then i was you know 35 and or no i guess i was almost four how old was i yeah i was coming close to 40 and mm. um and I was old, you know, I was older, like it's, it's easier. It's different. It, um, yeah. And I, I, I found that there was a, like not running was for me so much better. I, I couldn't have done it before and I don't think it's the right choice for everybody. But for me at that point, um, it was it was just so much better. It was just so much better to just be still and um, uh, know it, um, mm-hmm. like be in grief. Just like for me, it felt like oh, um, like the grief itself felt huge, and it still does. And scary sometimes and like and at times like more than I can handle but it's but it's mm, better than trying to avoid it than running away from it and and it's beautiful and it has its own pauses and it has its own joy and it has its own mm, way of replenishing and um but I and so but I was I felt lonely in that like I didn't have like I suddenly wanted a community you know like I I Mm. I felt like a like a solo knitter who was like, why can't <laughs> yeah. we knit in a circle? Like, yeah, can we all agree. Totally. Like, who wants to do yeah. this with me? But it's well, hard it's to in, ask, you know. It's hard it to like, call up your friend and be like, hey, do you want to like look at death and experience yeah. grief profoundly and in all things? It totally afternoon? is. <laughs> you know, and like, it's interesting what you're saying. I can really connect with that. And I think I've said this before on the show, maybe a couple of times now, but I think that there is the uh, expectation beyond just like the inclination. I think it's almost like a cultural expectation to run away from grief and to recover from it as quickly as possible. And we do anything we can. And there is a, there is an advantage to quote recovery. Of course, you don't want to be consumed by it and allow the rest of your life to, you know, I mean, 
whatever you can or you can't, but uh, optimally you will at some point find your way back to some kind of peace or homeostasis. But um, I think it really is so important what you can learn from those times when you are in really deep pain and deep grief and, and to take a beat, like to take a minute to see what you see there, because like those are the things that when you do resurface in some capacity or some way, to whatever, whatever extent that might be, like the, the things you learn when you're in deep grief and deep pain are things you can utilize so much as you know, part and incorporate into the rest of your life. And we like, we blow right past that so often Mm -hmm. and we don't, we don't feel better. We don't organize around it in community to be like, Hey, like how, how are you using this time? Mm -hmm. What's going on here? So, I mean, I think that's like an amazing thing that you said. And and is that what promoted you in some way to start the Portland grief house? Yeah, I, I, um, yes, exactly. Exactly that. Right. Like, um, it's fertile and we're, and we're Mm -hmm. missing it. Um, mm. like the image that I have is like, uh, like it's like we're taking all of our, like if grief were the, I have this idea of how grief can compost itself and turn into like this soil that you can grow from, but instead we're like taking yeah. all our stuff and like all of our grief and like wrapping it in plastic bags and like mm. putting it in the alley. And the alley is like horrific, you know, yeah. and yeah. it's not just that the alley is horrific and 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 also like filling up it's also it's it's that's too bad but also too bad is that we're not spreading it in the garden because it actually Mm -hmm, could decompose and make the stuff you know right um yeah yeah and so I I just felt like but what I wanted was just life like regular life that included grief like I I I I had a great therapist such a good therapist I love my therapist so much um and I had spaces where I could be fully in grief where I could like, you know, walk in and be like, and now the grief is occupying this whole space. But I didn't have spaces where I could just be, where I could be many, many things. Um, And that was what my idea was for the house. And at first I, you know, it was pre-pandemic. So I imagined my mother has this big house, like a very generous relative um, gave her some money a few years ago to put a down payment on a house because, you know, she didn't only single parent she hadn't saved money um and so she lives in this house it's like a house and it's only like 15 minutes away and it's I thought oh we can use the space you're not using in your house and we can have physical gatherings and um we can just do mundane stuff like we can um fix bikes or we can like pickle vegetables I really wanted there to be a huge food component we can garden we can like Mm you know, we can sort out how to ferment stuff and, and we'll just do stuff, but we won't, but we'll, but we'll all agree ahead of time to be all the things. So like allow all the things to move through us as they do not, Mm. we don't have to be manifesting grief in any kind of Mm -hmm. predictable traditional way at any particular moment. You know, it can just be like, I just, you know, like, we'll just be like, not, it's like not pathologizing it. Yeah. But it being an integrated part of our humanness. Yeah. That's what you're like, saying. let's just yeah. be right. humans. Let's just be humans. But mm-hmm. like all the way. And we'll just do it for a little bit. We'll just do it for like an hour, you know? Right. And then we'll go back and we'll like yeah. be the other yeah. kind of human. That's like, I'm pa- how are you at the grocery store? Like, I'm great, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, we're taught, I think, in some way, and this is, and no, I, I have a great admiration, and I think there's a huge importance, Mom, to, for instance, what you do as a psychotherapist and a grief and trauma specialist. Um, but there is this thing, even about therapy, traditional therapy, where you're still going inside a closed room alone or even in a group. You know what I mean? It's in a kind of hidden building for or like you know what I mean it's it's enclosed and it's private and I know that for a lot of people it's important for it to be private everybody processes in a different way but there is something that I think is so beautiful about kind of just even being outside fixing bikes or gardening where it's like this isn't something we need to hide inside of an office and again mom and that's in no way to of course well, I have a good example traditional- I was telling Zari you know 9-11 obviously we passed it last week and um, for four years, I worked in a project in our community on Long Island, um, which was a family center for grieving people from 9-11. It was not a psychology center. It was not a place where people came for grief. It was a family center. And we had a kitchen. And we had projects. And we had trips. And we made things. Mm. And we talked about things. And because everyone was so traumatized at the time, they brought their families. So there were 100 people that all gathered together for four years. Mm-hmm. And it evolved into so many different combinations. So I noticed on your one of your things on your website that you talked about, we're not separating, you know, grieving spouses and somebody that lost their job. But we're not separating all that. Everybody's together just talking about the nature of loss. And that's yeah. what this center was like, because it wasn't just, you know, a, although we did have sometimes separate groups for people who lost their children and people who lost their spouses, but we brought them all together as families. And it was a whole different experience because they had to go back into their lives with this. They had to build, rebuild their lives. And I think that's the concept you're saying, Zara, that when you go in an office and it's hidden and it's private, you have to go back in your life. How do you integrate that? So it makes right. more sense or it makes a lot of sense to also have the live living grief living with grief yeah it's it's really about bringing it's about bringing like anything else that uh that is part of our personhood and our humanity and like uh that makes up the fabric of who we are I think having it exist in the open in open space is important Mm -hmm. you know what I mean and it's like coming out with it just as like coming out in a lot of other ways is important I think we don't think of grief so much as like coming out but really it is kind of like that because it is something as with the other things, you know, that people are taught to keep to themselves, like well, the shame, keep, the shame element and the right, isolation element. And, and so yeah. I, I think what you're doing is, is really exceptional and important. And I'd love to see more of that happen around, you know, the country mm-hmm. and definitely in our own community. It's something to think about trying to do because like being able to like live, you know, grief is part of like our truth right when you experience real grief it becomes part of your your truth and your personhood just as much That's as right. like anything else and it's so it's integrated yeah right being able to kind of live that and process it and deal with it in a very kind of human way rather than this kind of tight buttoned up traditional way that we're taught as like the mm-hmm. you know the natural well, it's, it's not a, it's not a disease you know it's a real right. part of life and one of the things i always explain to people is that when they first have a loss all they experience is just the grief and eventually the more you live and the more you live i don't think the grief changes that much i think that we learn to live with grief because it yeah. grief is life it's part of our life yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that yeah, all of that, all of that. Yeah. And it and it does feel like, um, yeah, I think you're right. It does feel like a thing that um, 
I mean, it probably is already happening in a million different ways. Like that, that center that you're describing sounds like exactly like it, right? I think that it's um, intuitive to to mm-hmm. us. Like I think that there, like when you were Zara, when you were saying how either there used to be a time when we were dependent on it. We lived in community and we were dependent on the community and the community knew us because it had to know us or the community was more weak. Like if I hid my grief, well, first of all, you knew about my grief because it was yours. You know, like if my aunt died, that was your sister. And so it wasn't, of course you knew about my grief, but second of all, you had to know about my grief because you were dependent on me. And, um, so you needed me not to hide it. Like you needed me, so many interesting metaphors it's like like you needed me to tell you when i was a little bit broken because yeah that was how you knew how much weight you were gonna carry that day you know absolutely Um, and it made everyone more safe and now i think that we think it makes us more safe to hide parts of ourselves from each other and or and i think that that worked or sort of worked for a while and now it's falling apart in so many so many ways you know like so many ways it's falling apart now um which is scary and painful and hopeful um because maybe there's maybe on the other side there's this maybe this is the lesson we learn like right you had a beautiful quote on your website, I guess it was. And your website is beautiful, by the way. I really liked it a lot. It was, and you have so a new website coming out, which is, I mean, this ah. one's already so beautiful, <laughs> so we can't imagine what the next is. But you be. said that maybe broken is the first step towards a different kind of whole, a more inclusive and integrated whole. And that's, mm-hmm. that was just beautiful. That said it so well. Because mm. that's the, the truth, the opportunity in brokenness. Absolutely. And I think it's something that we want to rush past and not look at. But like, you know, it's funny. It reminds me of when I was in Rome, uh, maybe like two years ago, I went to the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. And before you get to the Sistine Chapel, have you, I don't know, have you got, mom, you've not been to Rome. Have you Mm -hmm. been to Rome, Laura? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you go to the Sistine Chapel, it is it winds you through this like beautiful museum. Um, mm. There's incredible art everywhere, right? But like they're walking you through extremely quickly so you can get to the Sistine Chapel. And if you look around, there's like Dali sketches <laughs> on the wall. There's Picassos. There's all this like gorgeous, incredible art. Like and you can get off the line that's moving rapidly towards the Sistine Chapel at any time and look around at these side galleries, but almost no one does. And Mm. I jumped off and looked at every side gallery because I was Mm -hmm. like, gosh, there's so much here. Like we're on the way to what we think is like, Mm. you know, the end of this trip, the like Mm -hmm. piece de resistance. But like, I don't know. I mean, we're just bypassing all this like incredible stuff. And like, how many times are you going to go even be here this is it you know what i mean it's It's the journey not the destination right so like stop off and check out what's going on i also think one thing that really struck me about what you were talking about wanting to do at grief house as being really important is you know integrating different types of grief together so people Mm -hmm. who are experiencing what you call big grief and little grief and mom i know you talk about this a lot too um, of, of folks experiencing all kinds of griefs, maybe like what we consider, quote, little grief, like the loss of a job or the loss of a pet compared to like the loss of a parent or a child or a spouse or something. 
and about kind of taking maybe the judgment or comparison out of that. And Absolutely. mom, like, what is your, I just actually had wanted to ask you like your professional opinion about, cause I know you see all kinds of folks who experience all different kinds of grief mm-hmm. and I'm sure some people compare them and then I'm sure in your own, you know, I, I know I compare when I'm talking about a problem to my therapist, I'm like, oh, but it's not like, you know, I just lost my job in this pandemic. It's not like when I lost my dad or it's not like what some other people might be. You know, we have this constant uh, desire yeah. to compare. Well, I, I think that I have come to because of so many different kinds of losses in my experience to not there is no hierarchy. And so somebody could have um, just been disappointed about something, a job they didn't get or whatever. And for them at that moment, it's huge. So I really have learned myself not to prioritize, but I do see how people do that. And it's an amazing phenomenon, really. And so um, it's we need to break that spell. We just really do. Yeah. Because what, what a person is experiencing... We had a guest last week, as a matter of fact, that um, had lost everything in a fire. And everything that she said had to do... It could have been the same issues applied to the loss of a child or a parent or anything. It was all the stages of grief, all the yeah. aspects of grief. It was really... Right, Sarah? It was really Absolutely. amazing to see. And I think when we're talking, when you, it just struck me a moment you were saying that, that like, you know, I think it's important to realize that what it all kind of boils down to, in my opinion, at least, is that it's dis- it's disappointment. It's like, yes. I thought my life was going to mm. feel this one way and it's not feeling that way. And it's like feeling your own mor- mortality. I mean, like whether people realize it or not, it's like, I will die someday and this part of me will have never been satisfied or I lost this thing I didn't want to lose. And it really hurts no matter what it is. And like, I feel like we can unify in that. Like, has that been your experience with, and, and is that what you're looking to do a little bit with, with the project? Yeah. I, um, yes. I think that um, it does feel to me like when we, that we do it out of a, a good intentions, you know, like when I'm like, oh, but. I'm just, all that happened to me is, you know, my cat died. So that's, I mean, I know that your grief is so much, you know, on, on one level, I think the idea is that that is going to make it so that other people feel seen and respected, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's important. It is really important to figure out a way to not assume that you know what another person's feeling is or to, um, like, I think that there's an effort that sits underneath the hierarchies, this, the segregation and the hierarchy, that is not a bad effort. That, like, I think there's an intention under it that is not bad and, and does It's to honor. Be, it's to yeah. honor. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. That, and is it, what is it? Is it like, it, it also feels like there's a thing about it that's like, um, that maybe is acknowledging that it's easy to drown out someone else's grief with your grief like right yes well i have a wonderful story to tell that really fits this very well um i remember starting a group once and it was a parents group and they all had lost their parents and uh, their children and the first person described that she her son had been sick for 30 years he had muscular dystrophy he had been you know so many times he almost died and what an unbelievable journey it was for her and the woman next to her they had not no one knew their stories was glaring at her, glaring at her. And she looked at her and she spoke. She said, my son died in an accident. He died suddenly. I didn't get to say goodbye over and over again. I didn't have that time. And they started fighting. And the other woman said, but I had to go over all those years. He died. You at least it happened once and it was over. And the whole group 
looked at each other and we just sighed and we realized that's when we realized there's no comparing of loss. But, you know, we, we feel it inside of us that the comparing because it's the isolation. And that's why groups are so important because in groups you, or, or centers, um, you get to experience other people. You get to feel their feelings, feel their pain. And we're used to being isolated with loss. And, and I think that I don't know how to do it. Like I, I recognize that that is a thing that feels like we don't, I don't know that we've got, that we've got, that we have a good solution for it, but I think that it's worth just sitting in the, like falling into the discomfort again and again and again and again, like acknowledging that we don't have a good solution for it. Like, I don't know what it looks like. Like I'm not under the, um, I'm not deceived into believing that because we're fixing bikes, that's, that stuff isn't going to show up, you know, like, like we're, we're scared, you know, we're so scared. We're so scared. And I think that when we're hurt, it feels like I'm scared and I'm hurt. And now I'm acknowledging that I'm hurt and I don't have any idea. I cannot know for sure that it's going to be okay. And you're here in this room with me and you're a stranger. Like, I, I think we don't spend enough time marveling, like truly <laughs> marveling at the fact that we, like, I don't know you people at all. You yeah. run a radio show, like, and yeah. that is the full <laughs> credentials that you have that make me feel comfortable, like opening up my heart and telling you about these enormously vulnerable things. Like I think about it yeah. all the time with massage. Like I have a website I have a website and that makes people feel okay coming to my house, <laughs> taking off their clothes and lying yeah. on a table and just like being like, do what you like, go ahead, yeah. lady with the website. <laughs> like, yeah. you must be my friend. You definitely won't kill me. Like, and, yeah, and your website says so. Remarkable. Like, there's no other social animal that would even conceive of that. Like, imagine an ant walking into another ant colony and being like let me lie down here and you just do whatever you want to me like listen they might be doing that we have no idea (laughs) well i mean i think science is trying to constantly determine well as people we're uh trying to constantly determine what makes humans humans right Mm -hmm. so it used to be like our capacity to to build until you know the industrial revolution and you know so on and so on and now i really think it's almost been distilled on our capacity to really like feel Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to understand, maybe it's the longing to be understood. You know, I noticed on your website, you um, had some books and all the books were things that I love, every single one of them. Oh. And the, the poetry of Rumi and the mm-hmm. poetry, you know, the, that poetry is 2000 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the mm-hmm. same things that we talk about. This very the longing to be understood. Yeah, And to me, it feels mm-hmm. like that is another one of the things that makes us a, a thing that to me makes us marvelous is our ability to conceptualize, uh, to believe that we're friends, even mm-hmm. though, I mean, and I recognize that the breakdown in that is is terrible, um, but the fact that it is even something that we could try to do, for me to imagine that you're my friend, like yeah. it is, it is, I think from like a biological, like a, it's just, amazing that that is a thing that any animal could do that we could have an idea of there being like how many humans are there like is it like it's an eight and then billions is it 80 or is it just eight i don't know (laughs) know. i'm I'm like it's eight or 80 it's i think it's billion (laughs) (laughs) i can't think of a number that big but we have some idea that like 
I mean, we can think of ourselves as Americans and Americans, I mean, like we can hold these enormous concepts and then have some idea of, of like unity and friendship in these, in these, like across these huge differences and in these enormous collectives. And I think that that's remarkable. And I think that it is not a thing. Um, uh, I'm going to use, mm, I'm going to use a word that is not the right word. I'm going to use a word that's a wrong word and then we'll just see what happens. Okay. Um, it's not, it's not natural. Like it's not the thing that all animals do. We talk a lot about how humans yeah. are like these horrible animals and we like kill each other. And But animals do that. That's what animals do, right? Animals yeah. group by type and then they defend their territory from other animals that are like the same animals, like squirrels, people, I have, I have a lot of feelings. I have close relationships with squirrels in my neighborhood. And um, mm -hmm. <laughs> people talk about like, oh, there's a squirrel in my attic and I'm going to be very humane and I'm going to live trap it and then I'm going to release it into the woods where it can live happily with squirrels. Like, no, those squirrels in the woods will kill it. Like, yeah. squirrels wow. are territorial. They're not going to let, they're not going to be like, welcome, strange squirrel, come live yeah. in the woods. <laughs> like, absolutely not. They'll identify that squirrel as a stranger and murder that squirrel. Mm -hmm. um, but humans won't. 100% yeah. of the time like we will yeah. sometimes for sure yeah but yeah. but sometimes we won't like a lot of times we won't and that is amazing that's an amazing thing and I think that that's the most to me it feels like that's one of the most beautiful things about us and but not but we take it so lightly we we pay a lot of attention to the I think we take it lightly maybe mm. more lightly. I think we do both I think we do both I think fear causes us to repel what we don't mm -hmm. know and love helps us to embrace or en engage in what we don't know. Mm. And I think it's yeah. both. Unfortunately, there's a lot I, of fear in the world. There's too many, there's, there's so much fear, fear with humans. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. and that's the biggest problem. Yeah. So I just well, feel like I'd like to spend time thinking about like when we're doing this other thing, when we're doing this thing with our fear that's so remarkable, where we're suspending it and believing that we're friends, that we're that we can have mm. our default position be trust. Um, all right. <laughs> when we're doing that, we need to, I would like to, first of all, spend a, spend a moment marveling at it. Like spend a moment being like, can you believe we're doing this? Like, this is yeah. awesome. Raccoons could never do this. And yeah. then I would like to, after we spend a moment marveling, just admit that it's really hard and that we're going to mess it up a lot and that we're going to just stay in that. Like, it's not going to feel perfect. It's just not because it's not an easy yeah. thing. Um, and I, so that's kind of my idea for the house too, is that it's going to, that I'd like to create, and right now it's a hundred percent virtual. Um, <clears throat> but I just like to create a space that is diverse enough that you can, um, that people have the, have the space to be, um, complex and imperfect and, and just stay around, you mm. know, like stay around, like, um, like, like. Do you know what I mean? Like, just like yeah, it sounds like a re it's a relationship house. You were describing relationship, before, yeah, right? right? The imperfections yeah. and the, yeah, like the yeah. you don't just bolt if it's not perfect. It's just a place mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. We can't wait to see how it develops, and you know, yes. it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, we always ask everybody at the end of the show, kind of a similar question, and kind of just about like what if you could give your former self and as I mean it's up to you what which version of former self you want to kind of connect with but I guess I kind of see it as the 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 person the girl you were describing the younger person um 
who felt afraid of death maybe, you know, and was kind of, you know, grappling with that. But if you could tell your former self, whatever version of that it is to you that you're picturing, uh, and give yourself a piece of advice that, you know, knowing what you know now, having gone through a life, like what would, what would that be? Um, I think, I think it would be, uh, this is filling up all the space you can see right now, but there's so much more space around you and, um, you can't, you can't do anything about getting into that bigger space right now, but maybe know that it exists. Just know that it exists. And, Mm. um, and that it's sort of, uh, and that it'll come, it will come available. Maybe something like that. It's not very practical. It's not practical advice. What would I tell her practically? (laughs) Tiny girl, you're so scared. Um, God, I don't, practically, I don't know. I think she did everything she could do. I just wish that she knew that, um, that there was, even in that moment, not like that a good, that it would get better, but even in that moment, there was like so much more space around her. Yeah. So much more space around her. Perspective, right? Mom, you always talk about the cup of salt thing. I do. Yeah. Should I tell that little story now? It's a lovely Buddhist story about a cup of salt. So if you imagine that um, you have a glass of water and a cup of salt and you pour the big cup of salt into the glass of water and you stir it around and you taste it and it's so bitter. It is so hard to bear. But if you take the same cup of salt and you sprinkle it in the fresh water lake, you go out there and you sprinkle it and then you take a glass of water and you taste it, it's, it's, it tastes good. Mm-hmm. The salt is there, but it's the space. So I think you're talking about there's a lot more space than we realize and when we're afraid... It's a very narrow, narrow little space that we get stuck in. It's concentrated. It's the cup. It's yeah. the salt. Yep. Everything is yep. very salty. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Laura, this was such a beautiful talk. I wish we could talk for another three hours. But <laughs> yeah, well, um, we, sh- we should definitely keep the conversation going outside of the podcast. And we want to keep up with everything you're doing. And can you just tell everyone listening how we can... We can follow along with what you're doing. Like, where can we find you? Um, so the website is griefhouse.org. Um, and we have Instagram. I don't know okay. about how social media works, but we have Instagram. It's the <laughs> Portland Grief House. Um, okay. And we have a Facebook page as well. Um, and I think you can find that also for just searching by searching the Portland Grief House. Um, oh. And then on the website, there's also links to various social media. Um, Great. Yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, many, many blessings to you and your mom and your community that you're growing. Your beautiful community that you're cultivating. And um, also just, you know, I don't know the right, I don't know that I have the right words for this in terms of sending love or vibes or prayers. It all seems a little bit kind of not Mm. sufficient, but um, sending a lot of intention towards what's happening to you personally. And also just Portland and the West Coast as a community and this like, really really tumultuous aggressive time in human history so we're thinking about you all out there thanks it feels it yeah. feels good to know that yeah, yeah. thank you good. thank you so much laura we'll talk to you thank later. you thanks, so laura. much take bye. care yeah. good bye. thank you okay bye this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years 
Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.